Anybody watch a football game last night? Anybody have no clue what I'm talking about? All right, that's okay. I'm going to get, whoa, whoa now, whoa. All right, that's not what I'm talking about today, but I just had to ask, go Seahawks. Uh, two weeks till we kick off, and uh, just because it's football season doesn't mean you can skip, skip church. I just got to make sure we say that. All right, when we start talking about the life of Jesus, in the decades before and after Jesus's life and death, There were dozens upon dozens of messianic movements that started before and after his life. And almost every one of these cases, and almost every one of these cases, whenever that uh, messianic leader was killed, many times these messianic leaders were killed by execution, but whenever one of these leaders was killed, it, it, it invariably led to the collapse of whatever movement they had started. Okay? Time and time again, the leader is killed. Everybody goes home. And and that was that. That was it. There was no more movement. Of all of those dozens of movements, only one of these movements did not collapse after the death of the leader. And not only did this movement not collapse, in fact, it exploded Over the course of 300 years, this movement spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And as you look 2,000 years later, it has spread across the globe. So out of all of these messianic movements, what is it that makes Christianity so different? What is it that makes Christianity so much different than all of these messianic movements that came before and after Jesus? If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 uh, and 16. Uh, if you need a Bible, slip your hand up. We've got an usher in the back who'd love to come and, and, and put a Bible in your hands. See, out of all these messianic movements, what is it that made Christianity so different? See, what appeared to be the ending of the movement. And all those other movements, when the leader died, that signaled the end. But what happened at the death of our leader we find today isn't the end of our movement. It's actually the beginning. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 and uh, 16. We're going to start uh, chapter 15 and start reading in verse 37. Before we read, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. God, we're thankful for the opportunity to open up your word today. To be able to, to hear what it is that you have for us. God, that we know that this is not a pastor's opinion, but we're hearing your word God, I pray that you would help us to, to receive it. I pray that you would help us to, to, to accept it. I pray that you would help us to believe. God, I pray as we look at Jesus' death, as we look at his resurrection, God, I pray that you would give us understanding. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Meet with us here now, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So Mark chapter 15, start reading in verse 37, you can follow along in your Bible. We also will have it on the screen. And it says this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw uh, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger, uh, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there was also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Jesus would have died mid-afternoon. And uh, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the way that their laws said, is the Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday. And so there was only this, this short window of time that they could take Jesus' body and go and have it buried because once the Sabbath began at sundown, there was a law that she said you could not work. So his body could not be buried on the Sabbath day, which would have lasted for the next day. So this means that Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43, 43 says that he took courage and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And this is what happened uh, with Pilate. Verse 44 says, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he was asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now, see, when, when, when Mark was a writer, when Mark wrote this gospel, he was very intentional with the way that he wrote things out. And so he writes this burial in a very significant way. He's trying to make a point that is just as valid today as it was way back when he was writing to whoever he was going to write this letter to. Mark is writing in a way to really certify that Jesus was really dead. Mark wants to make sure that those people who were going to read this back then, and you and I, we realize Jesus wasn't just kind of dead. He wasn't just dead tired. He, he, he wasn't just critically wounded. He wants to certify, to make us know without a doubt that Jesus was really dead. So each piece of information that, that Mark writes here is, is, is another way to affirm that Jesus really died. These are essentially proofs that Jesus was really dead. First, it says after Joseph of Arimathea, after he asked Pilate for the body, Pilate calls the centurion. He calls the centurion and says, hey, is this man dead? The centurion, he would have been in charge of the whole crucifixion. He would have had the legal authority to proclaim Jesus as being dead. In fact, the centurion, being, being a soldier, being, being a, a supervisor, a, a lieutenant in the military, he would have been a, an expert at determining whether somebody was dead. And so the centurion comes and he testifies to Pilate, this man is dead. He's no longer living. He was dead. Secondly, Joseph of Arimathea, he goes through this whole burial ordeal where he takes Jesus' body down off the cross. He washes off the blood. And then he takes Jesus' body and he wraps it in, in, in the burial cloths, in, in the grave clothes, which were, were strips of, of cloth that would have been uh, uh, wrapped tightly around the body of Jesus. You see, in addition to just those cloths around his body, there also would have been a, a face cloth that would have been wound tightly around his face. So you've got a picture. If Jesus wasn't really dead, could his body withstand all of that moving around without being awoken? 
And if he was really not dead, when they took that, that grave cloth and put it around his face, that would have made it nearly impossible for him to breathe. The grave clothes prove that Jesus was really dead. Thirdly, the enclosed tomb confirmed his death. I mean, how, how big was this stone that they rolled in front of that tomb? I mean, it's curious to think about how big it was. We're going to see that the next day, uh, uh, this stone was big enough that the three ladies who came to anoint Jesus' body after he died, they were looking for help to move that stone because they knew they were going to be unable to move it on their own. So again, you've got a picture of how, how difficult it would have been, if not impossible, for, for a man in Jesus' condition to survive two nights with no food, with no water, with no medical attention. Nearly impossible. Finally, Mark cites the women as eyewitnesses, again confirming his death. So what Mark's done for us is, is Mark has given us multiple experts, multiple eyewitnesses that prove that Jesus was really dead. In fact, there's this funny story about a lawyer who was questioning uh, a doctor on, on the witness stand on whether or not a man that the doctor worked on was really dead. And so the lawyer says, doctor, 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 before you perform, before you perform that autopsy, did you, did you check for a pulse? And the doctor says, well, no, no, I didn't. Lawyer says, well, well, doctor, did you check for the blood pressure? The lawyer or the doctor says, well, no, I, I didn't. And the lawyer says, so is it possible that this patient was still alive when you began the autopsy? And the doctor says, no, no. And the lawyer says, well, how can you be sure, doctor? I mean, I mean you, didn't, you didn't check his pulse. You didn't check his blood pressure. How can you be sure that this man was dead when you performed the autopsy? And, and the doctor says, well, his brain was sitting in a jar on my desk. I mean, that pretty much confirms it. And the lawyer says, but the patient could have been alive nonetheless. And the doctor says, well, yes, it's possible that he could have been alive and probably practicing law somewhere. <laughs> Mark wants to paint the picture for us and wants it to be very clear. Jesus was dead. No one who saw him questioned this fact. Jesus was dead. But before we move on past this, there's something I want to just stop and think about for a second about this Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was one of the Sanhedrin. Joseph was one of those religious leaders who sentenced Jesus to death. And you've got to just wonder, you've got to say something's weird here, because here, Joseph of Arimathea, one of the religious leaders, one of the Sanhedrin who sentenced Jesus to death, why is he taking this concern for Jesus and his burial. See, according to the Gospel of John, Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus at some point during Jesus' earthly ministry. But Joseph of Arimathea was, was secret about it because he feared the Jews. He feared what the rest of the religious leaders that he worked with, what they would say, what they would do to him. So when Joseph met Jesus, he came in secret because he feared the repercussions of what it meant for him to follow Jesus. Yet here, after the cross, he's doing these things publicly. He boldly goes before Pilate and asks for the body. 
He cleans Jesus' body. He wraps it in grave clothes. He uses his own burial plot to bury Jesus. All of this would have been done in public. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he likely was going to be charged with treason for this bold act of, of love towards Jesus. Something happened. Something happened when Jesus died on the cross. You see, I think from Joseph, I think we see that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Before, before Joseph had seen the depth of love displayed on the cross, he followed Jesus, but in secret. He didn't want that to, to have to sacrifice anything in his life. He wanted it to be, to be done behind closed doors. But once he saw the gospel played out, once he saw the sacrifice that Jesus made in his place and in ours, everything changes for Joseph. And he suddenly demonstrates a love for Jesus regardless regardless of the cost, regardless of the repercussions. See, I think this is the same love that God is looking for from every one of us. A love that is demonstrated even when there is no earthly gain by it, regardless of the cost or the repercussions. See, I know, I know how it works. I know there's someone here today who might be a little bit secret about their faith, might be a little secret about the relationship with Jesus. I mean, sure, it's easy to come to church. It's easy to be all about Jesus on, on Sunday mornings because we all are here all about Jesus. But living our faith out in real life, standing up for the truth of who Jesus is, that's completely different. I mean, I think about, I think about the kids and the teens who are starting school this week. I mean, do your friends... At school, even know that you are a Christian? Adults, what about your coworkers? What about those family members that you see once a year? Will they even know that you are a believer in Christ? Will they even know how Jesus has impacted your life? See, if we understand what the gospel means for us, it changes everything. It changes everything. At some point, at some point, we no longer can be concerned with our repercussions of following Jesus. We can no longer be concerned about what people will think, what people will say. We have to be willing to have a love for him that is demonstrated regardless of the cost, regardless of the repercussions. Like Joseph, we have to demonstrate a love for God when there is no earthly benefit for it. When we can genuinely say, I'm doing this because of the love that he's given to me. Mark continues his story, verse, chapter 16, verse 1. And he says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? One of the things that's kind of strange is, is within the last 10, 11 verses in Mark's gospel, he's listed these three women three different times. As you think about this, three times in the span of 11 verses, Mark records the names of these women who witnessed the events. You've got Mary Magdalene. You've got Mary, <coughs> excuse me, Mary, the mother of uh, James and Joseph, and, and Salome, who was the mother of James and John. 
You say, well, why is he repeating himself? I, I think this redundancy of Mark's is Mark's way of letting us know that he's telling us a historical account. This isn't just some legend. I mean, these repeated names kind of become like a works cited page. You want to verify my story? Go find those women. They're still alive. They can tell you everything that I'm writing you about now. They can verify everything that I am saying. Go check out for yourselves. Go talk to these women and verify what you've heard. So these women, it says they bring spices. And they're on the way to the tomb so they can finish the burial rites on Jesus' body. And Mark continues in verse 3. And he says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us for the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place that he is laid. You hear his message? He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. There's nothing more miraculous, more spectacular than the fact that Jesus, who was crucified, who was dead, who was in the tomb, is no longer there. He's no longer dead. He's resurrected. He has risen. And these women respond with complete surprise. They came in expecting to find a dead body. But instead, they hear these words from the angel. He is risen. He is not here. It just makes us wonder, though, why are they surprised? They shouldn't have been surprised. None of us should be surprised that Jesus was ruptured. None of his disciples should have been surprised. Because think back to Mark's gospel. We've been studying Mark's gospel for several months now. Think back to Mark's gospel. He has told his disciples again and again and again, I will rise on the third day. I will die and then I will rise on the third day. He said it in Mark chapter 8. He said it again in Mark chapter 9. He said it again in Mark chapter 10. See, Mark's writing style, again, we have to understand the way he wrote this, the way that he wrote his gospel. He wrote his gospel very short and very to the point. So if Mark's going to quote Jesus saying something three times, chances are that Jesus said this again and again and again. You can picture Jesus. I am going to die. And on the third day, I will rise again. On the third day, I will rise again. On the third day, I will rise again. Again and again and again. Given that emphasis that Jesus made about the resurrection. Do you think it's odd that here on the third day, none of Jesus' disciples are at the cross? Or excuse me, at the tomb. Do you think that's weird? I mean, if Jesus had made such an emphasis, on the third day I will rise again, yet at the tomb there are no of his disciples there. I mean, the females, they appear. But they appear bringing along all the expensive spices and perfumes to which a dead body is customarily anointed. See, nobody is actually expecting a resurrection. Again, when you think about how often Jesus repeated this idea, when you think about how big of a deal Jesus made it, wouldn't you think at least one of the disciples would have said, hey, hey, you know, remember Jesus said that thing about the resurrection, about coming back to life? Maybe... Since it's the third day, maybe we should just go and check it out. Maybe we should just go and just see. I mean, what's it going to hurt? 
see. In fact, nobody said anything like that. They did not expect a resurrection to happen at all. It didn't occur to them. That's why the angel, when he was in front of the women, he said, you will see him just as he told you. So here's the point. The resurrection of Jesus, if it didn't happen, it would be nearly unbelievable. I mean, we don't expect people to rise from the dead. I mean, sure, you think about his disciples. They may have predicted maybe a future resurrection when, when the whole earth would be made new again. But these disciples, they had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. And today, people have just as much skepticism about the resurrection. Just as much of a hard time believing in Jesus' resurrection. That's why people will say, sure, I believe Jesus. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. But that stuff about him rising from the dead, you know, that's just too out there. I don't believe that can happen. But here's the thing. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that that tomb was empty on that Sunday morning. I mean, I mean, even the most extreme skeptics, they agree the tomb was empty. But the question is, where's the body? Where is the body? See, you've got to say, well, well why, why, why do we have the empty tomb? Some people will say the tomb was empty because Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. You know, this is probably the oldest explanation for the empty tomb that we know to exist. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, when the, when, when the soldiers come before the chief priests and the scribes and say, Hey, his body is gone. It's, it, it's gone. The religious leaders, they tell those guards, they say, Hey, you tell the people that the disciples stole his body. I mean, this is, this is a logical explanation as to why the tomb was empty. But you've got to think about this. Okay, Jesus had 12 disciples. Judas, he betrayed Jesus, committed suicide, so he's gone. So there's 11 disciples. Out of those 11 disciples, 10 out of 11 of those disciples, they suffered and were persecuted and, and were martyred for their faith. Because of their faith in Jesus, they suffered to the point of death because they stood for what Jesus did. They stood for who Jesus was. You've just got to think. Would they have done that for a lie? Would they be led as a martyr for something that did not really happen? I doubt it. it. Seems highly unlikely to me. Others would suggest Jesus' body was stolen by his enemies. I mean, we think naturally about the religious leaders, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, all these people. But remember, these religious leaders, their goal from the very beginning, their goal from the very beginning was was the death of Jesus. They figured that for them, the goal is to silence Jesus, and the best way to silence Jesus is to kill him. That was what they wanted. So, so at the moment that Jesus stopped breathing, their headache ended. They won. They had the victory. And not only that, but we've got to understand what happened after the resurrection. In the weeks and in the months and the years to come, Christianity exploded. Peter and the apostles, they're preaching in Jerusalem and thousands upon thousands of people put their faith in Jesus and becomes followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, if, if, if Jesus' enemies, if they had taken his body, wouldn't it make sense for them to say, hey, here's his body and squash the spread of Christianity? 
way back when it just began? Some would suggest that the women and everybody else had gone to the wrong tomb. You know, they came to the tomb and found it empty. And the reason it was empty because they went to the wrong tomb. Now, this is possible, but again, I find it unlikely. Because remember, verse 47 of chapter 15, it says the women watched. And the women saw exactly where Jesus' body was laid. And if the women had been wrong, if they went to the wrong tomb, wouldn't somebody have gone back to find the right tomb? Again, one of Jesus' enemies, if, if this was true, when Christianity started spreading, wouldn't they go back to the tomb, the right tomb, and find his body and squash Christianity at that point to say, look, here's his body. He didn't really rise from the, from the grave. Others would say, well, Jesus, he didn't really die on the cross. He didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he just swooned or he just lost consciousness. But again, we've already seen Mark has already written very clearly, written in a way for us to know that Jesus really did die. He was 100% dead. So we come back to this question. Where is the body? The best answer, not only because of what the Bible says, but because it was reported by so many eyewitnesses, was that Jesus rose from the grave. That Jesus was resurrected. That Jesus, who was crucified, he is risen. The book of Acts tells us that after the resurrection, for 40 days, Jesus appeared to people constantly, to, to numerous groups of people. For the four gospel accounts, they record uh, no less than seven different appearances of Jesus to, to people after the resurrection. The apostle Paul, he mentions five separate appearances of Jesus, including one appearance where Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. You see, he's, here's the thing. When somebody says, hey, I don't believe in the resurrection, the question we need to ask them is, okay, well, where's the body? The tomb was empty. Everybody can agree to that. The question we have to ask is, where is the body? Because according to the evidence... This Jesus, who had been truly crucified and dead, was now truly alive and seen by many, many people after his resurrection. Mark continues his story, and he says this, verse 6. He says, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel instructs the women, go, go tell his disciples. Go find his disciples and tell them to head to Galilee and you will see him there. Go tell Peter to go to Galilee and that's where he want, Jesus wants to meet them. Now, we got to remember the disciples of Jesus. Remember the last time we talked about them? Remember the last time we saw them in Mark's story? How many of them came to the tomb that day? None. The last time we saw them, we saw them ashamed of Jesus. We saw them denouncing him and running away and hiding. These guys whom Jesus has spent the most time with, they were faithless, backstabbing cowards. But here, do you see do you see the amazing grace, the, the forgiveness that is offered in the resurrection? The last time we saw them, they were 
abandoning Jesus in his greatest time of need. And here in his resurrection, Jesus is saying, I want you to come back to me. Come and meet me. See, the resurrection is God's way of writing forgiven, paid in full across the pages of history. It is his way of writing forgiven, paid in full across the lives of the disciples and you and I. His death procured our forgiveness. And the resurrection is proof of that forgiveness. The resurrection is Jesus coming and saying, you disciples, you abandoned me last time. You abandoned me. But now that the resurrection has happened, you're forgiven. I'm going to restore you back to the place you were. And you are going to be my disciples to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So I've got to think about this. I've got to ask this question. So what does a resurrection mean for you and I? I mean, it means that our sin debt has been paid in full. But what does it mean for you and I right now? What are the implications for our lives, not just in the future at our resurrection, but what about in this present life right now? What what does a resurrection mean to you and I right now? See, when we think about this present life, why is it so hard to endure suffering? Why is it so hard to face disability and disease? Why is it so hard to, 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 to live life? Why is it so hard for us to do the right thing when we know it's going to cost us financially, when we know it's going to cost us reputation, when sometimes doing the right thing will even cost us our life? Why does it seem so hard? Why is it so hard to face our own death, let alone the death of somebody that we love? See, it's hard because we think that this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel as if this money that we have right now is the only money we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel like this body you have right now is the only body you are going to have. See, but if Jesus is risen from the dead. If he promises that you and I will share in that resurrection and one day we will be resurrected as well, then listen, your future, your future is so much more beautiful, so much more certain than what you and I experience in this world. I think about, there's a gal by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. She's a famous Christian author and and musician. When she was 17 years old, she suffered a tragic accident and was, uh, led her to be in a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And while she was trying to come to terms with this accident, she went to church in her wheelchair. And one Sunday at church, sitting in her wheelchair, there was a guest speaker. And the guest speaker says, here's what I want everybody to do. I want you to get down on your knees and I want you to pray to God. And everybody did, except her. She couldn't. She couldn't get down to her knees. And she writes and says, everybody was kneeling except for me. And I couldn't stop the tears. But these weren't tears of self-pity. These were tears because of the sight of hundreds of people on their knees before God. It was a beautiful picture of what heaven is going to be like. She said, here I am. I've got these shriveled fingers 
emaciated muscles, gnarled knees. I've got no feeling from the shoulders down. She said, but I have hope that one day I will have a new body, a light, a bright, clothed body, clothed in righteousness, clothed in power and dazzling beyond all belief. And she said, when I have those resurrected lays, I plan to drop to my knees, to drop to my glorified knees and kneel at the foot of Jesus. Because someday, what wears me down in this world will not be my life anymore because I will be restored, redeemed. See, it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we find such enormous hope to live, hope to endure. Only in the resurrection do you find the promise of not just new minds and new hearts, but the promise of a new body. See, if your body is broken and you can't do certain things, in the resurrection, your body will be whole and complete. You can't run, you can't kneel, you can't dance. Guess what? In the resurrection, you're going to run, you're going to kneel, you're going to dance. We can have a big old dance party. We can see Dan, Dan Petker doing the whip and nay-nay. I mean, we can see this phenomenal dance party in the resurrection. That's the picture for you, isn't it? Some of you are enjoying picturing that right now. Look, if you're lonely in the resurrection, you will have perfect love. If you're empty in the resurrection, you're going to be fully satisfied. If you're an alien in the resurrection, you will be a rightful citizen of the greatest kingdom ever, the kingdom of God. See, it is only in the gospel of Jesus do we find such enormous hope to live this life. Because we know this life is not the end. There is something greater coming for us. And it is in the resurrection. And we look forward to that day when we are made whole. Mark's going to finish his gospel in verse 8. He says, And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment has seized them. They said nothing for anyone, for they were afraid. And this right there, that's the end of Mark's gospel. It kind of seems abrupt. It kind of seems like, shouldn't there be more? I mean, it seems so, 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 so abrupt. It's like the end. There it is. Now, I know some of you are looking at your Bible and saying, well, pastor, no, there's another 12 verses. What about verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20? Well, actually, the earliest and the best biblical manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. And the style and vocabulary of this section is not characteristic with the way that Mark had written this gospel. See, what, what, what scholars believe is due to the abrupt and quick nature of Mark's ending, well-meaning scribes, they added verses 9 through 20 as a way to soften the ending, to make the ending of Mark's gospel sound more consistent with, you know, the, the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke and the gospel of, of, of John. So Mark likely finished his gospel in verse 8. And I think, you know, we look at this and say, well, it just seems like there should be more. Seems like it just so abrupt. But you see, I think that Mark finished his gospel like this on purpose. I think Mark did this on purpose, almost as if Mark is inviting you and I into the story. 
I mean, Jesus' death and his resurrection, we've already said this. His death and his resurrection, it's not the end. Rather, it's the beginning. The beginning of our part in the story. See, it's as if Mark, he's given us all the evidence. He's given us all the evidence of the life of Jesus. He's given us the evidence of his death and his resurrection. He's given us the evidence of these women. And now that the facts are before us, the question is, what will you do now? Because it becomes the beginning of our story. Will you ignore the evidence in front of you? Will you ignore it and say, man, that can't be true. That resurrection thing, it can't be true. There's got to be some other explanation. Or will you finish the story for yourself like this? Will you take up your cross? Will you follow Jesus? Will you respond to that risen Savior? Will you live in light of the resurrection? That Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, he says, I go and I prepare a place for you. I sit at the right hand of God and I mediate between God and man. Question is, how will you finish the story? Will you live differently because of it? Tell you what, I think about the fires that are going on right now. I think about the the three firefighters who passed away last week. Way back, if you're from the Yakima era, you might remember the 30-mile fire 15 years ago. 15 years ago, there was four young firefighters who were killed in the 30-mile fire. One of those firefighters I wrestled with. I went to high school and graduated with his sister. You know, things were different because of that. People's lives were changed because of that. How much more should our lives be changed because of the resurrection? The fact that there was a man who was dead. And through the power of God, he's alive today. Changes everything. So the question is, what will your story look like today? What will your story look like tomorrow? Because this isn't the end. Rather, this is the beginning of our story. Would you pray with me? God, we... Celebrate that empty tomb. The fact that Jesus, who died for us, conquered Satan, conquered death, conquered hell, rose from the grave, conquering death. God, there is nothing that is too powerful for him. If he can conquer death, then there's nothing that he cannot conquer. And God, as as, as we look to say, God, how do we fit into the story, God? I pray that you'd help us to understand what this resurrection means for our lives. That we can't go on the same. That somehow we have to be different. We have to be changed by it. God, I pray for someone here today, God, that they would have that boldness that, that Joseph of Arimathea had. They'd be willing to say, you know what? I get it. I get what the resurrection is all about. And you know what? I don't care of what people think about me. I'm going to stand up for my faith. I'm going to stand up for being a Christian. God, I pray that you would give us that boldness. God, I pray for those in here who are lacking that fire, that passion. God, I pray because of the resurrection that they would say, God, I'm yours. I want to be used by you. Because of the resurrection. Because we serve a God 
who gave us an empty tomb, who took the worst that this world could throw at him and conquered it. God, I pray that we will live in light of that resurrection, of knowing that no matter how difficult this world is, there's something so much greater, so much more beautiful, so much more amazing in front of us. God, I know that there are those in here today who are suffering, who are struggling, things that they haven't been willing to share, things deep down. God, I pray that you would meet them in their where they are today. That they would see that, God, you have something so much greater for them. That there is hope beyond today. There is hope tomorrow. There's hope for the future. Because this world is not the end. God, you are good. We, we are so thankful for what you've done for us on the cross. That you died for our sin and that you rose from the grave. God, we celebrate you now. I pray for each of us as we have the opportunity now to respond to your word. Now, this is a way we structure our church here at Restoration Church. We want people to have the opportunity not just to hear your word, but then to respond to it, to wrestle with it, to figure out what do I need to do now, to spend that time praying to God, crying out to him, to spend that time praising him for how good he is. So God, I pray that your spirit would rest on us now. That God, you would meet us with where we are. God, I pray for anyone in here who's just struggling, who's feeling the weight of the world, who's feeling, who's feeling uh, the pressures. God, I pray that if they would just cry out to you today, that you would meet them where they are. God, I pray if anybody in here says, Pastor, I want you to, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to have you pray for me, God. I pray that they would come forward during these couple of response songs. God, I'd love to pray with them. I'd love to hear their story. I'd love to cry with them. I'd love to just be there and encourage them to put their hope in you, God. God, I pray for anybody in here who has not accepted you as their Savior, who has not accepted the gospel, put their faith in you, as your Savior. God, I pray that today would be the day they'd say, you know what? Today I'm choosing to be a Christian. I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. God, I pray that as we hear these words of worship now, these songs, God, I pray that you would help us just to, to praise you for who you are because you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. God, I pray that your presence would remain with us now as we respond. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.